All right, guys. It's, it's holiday season. I'm going to tell you that you should all buy your friends. And I'm not going to say your best friends, but your friends. This is a good friends present is Comet Tier. If you have a lot of people you work with that you're close to and you don't want to break the bank, but give them a really nice gift, I think Comet Tier is a wonderful gift. And it's one of those gifts where more than likely, once their subscription runs out or the boxes, they're probably going to reorder it again. And that's how you know it's a good gift. I love coffee. I never really drank it before my kids, but now I need it. And I should have always done things in the world where you have, uh, gives you energy. This coffee is as good as it gets for me. I'm sure that if you're a coffee snob, but I still think the coffee snobs are wrong, right? I have coffee snob friends who actually love Cometeer. I do too. My snobbiest coffee but friends But my snobbiest it. coffee friends will say that it's, it's really good, but it doesn't have all the other stuff. And if you're one of those people, I'm not talking to you, <laughs> right? Honestly, I don't even know why I'm friends with these kinds of people. But if you like a good cup of coffee and you don't want to, you don't care about the ritual of making coffee or uh, you, you want access to some of the best roasters in the world, like go get them. Bird Rock, Joe Coffee, Counterculture, um, George Howell, Equator. Um, this is for you. And it's super simple. There's a lot of different things I can do with Cometeer. I can melt it and I can put it in my iced coffee. I can make a proper cup of coffee by just bringing a teapot to, uh, you know, what is it? 180 degrees. I can... They say that it's really good in an espresso martini, but that's not something I'm ever going to make at home. It really makes a specific kind of espresso mm-hmm. that we learned. We learned that. And then course, it's a really simple espresso. And I got to say, it's delicious. This is very good. Everything is delicious. And my dessert of choice, an affogato, which is just a vanilla ice cream, maybe a little cookie, biscotti. What a. <laughs> What a what a fancy name for a scoop of ice cream with some commentary on top of damn it's good. It's flash frozen with some of the best coffee technology out there. The packages are 100% recyclable. You get $20 off at commentary.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Hey guys, we have Chris Ying joining us today. It's been a while. And we have a guest, Van Lath. And uh, you may have known him from his days when he was helping put a lot of good stuff on TMZ and he has all over the ringer verse. Um, we're going to get a conversation about some interesting, fun stuff that only Van, I think can talk about, but um, we're, we're going to do a little bit of three things, do a quick Christmas guide, uh, everyone's favorite PFFW and then our conversation with Van. Let's go. All right, folks. Chris Yang, Major Doma Media's new YouTube star sensation. Well, what have you been? What have you been on? Why have you been so busy? Uh, I've been. I've been. I miss. I miss being on here. We haven't had our our time to chat, but um, I don't know, man. I'm like a uh, little creative pitch document factory back at the office. Is what I've been doing. We are mostly. working on some things that are. We joke that they sent. Monkeys to the moon, or monkeys to outer space first, and we're working on something we're, where we're the second. <laughs> we're literally the first mammals. human test subjects yeah. on this thing coming up. And once it's announced, it should make sense. 
once it's announced, we're not going to stop talking about it. It's going to be wild. It's going to be announced soon, I think. And that's on top of many of the projects that we're working on. And Chris is very busy. It's no excuse. I, I was, <laughs> Literally, I think my day on Friday was talking to you about this thing, this first men on the moon type of thing, uh, writing two TV show pitches. I think I, I, was, I wrote a chapter of a book. Mm, the book we're working on, too. <laughs> we're working on several books, which we'll talk about later. It's just wild. Anyway, there's a lot of people that have been com- commenting on our Discord and uh, on our YouTube. And if you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, please do so. I know you haven't because we have a lot of audience in the many, many thousands of people that are not... Subscribe to the yeah, thing. Subscribe yeah. or just watch. I know you haven't. <laughs> um, just a couple comments that are good. At Apache Disco. That's a very good hashtag title. Mm. At Apache Disco. Dave keeps on saying Ying is too busy to be around. I think Dave killed him in an innocent knife malfunction and Ying is now dissolving in a barrel beneath Major Domo. Feels that way. I wish. One can only wish. Noodle Noodlehead VN. Oh my God. I've literally listened to hundreds of podcasts and never seen Ying. Man, you're so much younger than you sound. Love the content. <laughs> Keep it tricky. So, how old do I sound? Uh, Kelsey Follinsby. At first, I was like, there's no way I'm watching a two-hour video of cooking Thanksgiving meal. Not correct. So I, I so enjoyed this. I really like seeing Dave and Chris cook and it's refreshing to see the realness and messiness of their cooking in these uncut takes. It's kind of revolutionary. So folks, Chris Ying here in the flesh, we have a lot of things going on. We have a lot of restructuring on this podcast. Um, we've been busy and I, I almost feel like we've neglected it, but we haven't. Um, there's a, there's some changes coming up. Yeah. Yes. I mean, listen, not to, not to give people too much of a peek behind the kimono, but you know, I started doing this podcast with you week one of the pandemic, basically. Yeah, and our podcast before the pandemic, very different. It was very different. It was very different then. It was very different again. Everyone's life, very different. Um, And there's another evolution of the podcast coming, but we have to get some technical aspects ready. And we are going to make another evolution of the podcast before that next change. And we're just letting you know. But and thank yeah. you for listening. Thank you for all the ups and downs. Seems like some of the listeners might say mostly down. <laughs> They're dicks then. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, we're going to get on to some of the segments and then to Van Lathan. But before, if you're not familiar with Van Lathan, you can check out. He's got a fantastic Instagram. Uh, his handle is V-A-N-L-A-T-H-A-N at Van Lathan. Uh, on Instagram and formerly known as Twitter X. And you can catch the Higher Learning Podcast with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay every Tuesdays and Fridays here on the Ringer Podcast Network. All right, let's get on to the show. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit amazon.com slash pureleaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry iced tea. 
This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit-free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit-free. The three things before three things. One is, I think it's one of the foods that I've always lied about. Not that many people would ask. And I talked about the last podcast, I think. I, I had an ortolan, but I don't know if it was an ortolan. They were just really small birds. Hmm. Gotta say, I don't know if they were delicious. They were delicious. But you gotta get over the fact that you feel like a giant human being eating so what is the Rob the Nagian? What is that? <laughs> Rob Dignagian. That's I another like big that. one. And I'm crunching on all these bones. It's a. It's not a surprise to me. Besides it, it becoming like Mitterrand, like the the Prime Minister friends. That's what he wanted on his last meal. And you don't see it on many menus, but it's served in very secret societies or something like mm-hmm. that. Ortolan, you put a towel over your head, and it's this whole process. Uh, we were eating at a Lebanese restaurant in Abu Dhabi, and we had it. And I was really excited. I played it off like, oh, I've I've had this many times. Very good. But also, I can't imagine it winning the world over. Number one, cleaning those birds must be a total pain in the ass. Mm. Two, you are crunching through. It's not like a soft shell crab. You're crunching through bones. Yeah. And it's very. Yeah. So you. <laughs> So for for people who don't know, like this is like the tiny, I think, very rare songbird. And you said you put it, you eat it under this towel. Or there was no towel, but like traditionally, traditionally, because it's like you don't want God to see you doing this. Basically, I mean, it's one of those things the French created. We were like, really <laughs> messed up. But you had some version of it because I, when I was in Beirut doing Ugly Delicious, we also in the Lebanon Lebanese yeah. restaurant, we had these tiny birds. And the same I agree, thing. you, it's it's crazy. You're popping the whole thing in your mouth. You're just like. Uh, do I eat all of this and just go for it? So this is one of those things that will never make the food editors next new big thing. <laughs> just saying tiny birds that are the size of a half of a Twix <laughs> candy bar, <laughs> you know, or big Tootsie roll. Okay. okay. They're tiny. Yes. yes. Go, boop, boop. And then you crunch through. They're not. Deboned, it's just their whole roasted body. They feel like body. a monster. Yeah, in every way, shape, yeah. and form. <laughs> anyway, I just was thinking about that a lot and how weirdly disturbing it was. And also how I lied to many people. Like, oh, yeah, I've had that. Oh, so you, were, you had claimed. No, I don't know if I've claimed, but if someone had brought it up, like, yeah. I, I, you knew about it. You are like, yeah. oh, yeah, Ortolans, yeah, of course. And you eat it in the towel, right? And, and this kind of thing. More or less disturbing than Balut. That's not something I'm never going to. Eat. What is balut for those that <laughs> balut are fertilized duck eggs. So when you eat them, you have oh god, there's no way to say this without being totally disgusting. But it's like a half formed baby duck in an egg. It's not something I want to try, but it is a cultural legacy of the food of the Philippines. Yeah, and I will say this: I've had it. I'm not lying, and I kind of enjoyed it. Because I'm a monster. The other thing I wanted to talk about, it's the restaurant hearth's 20th anniversary. Marco Canora was really the first chef I ever had that 
um, who led an all-star murderer's row of cooks um, at Kraft, and he was at Gramercy Tavern and uh, La Cucina and Martha's Vineyard. And it's the 20th anniversary. I couldn't be there today because I've been on the road so much. But I wanted to tell you a quick story about Marco. Besides him being famous for making some of the most delicious food, and beside him, besides him being what I think is the epitome of what a chef should be like in many regards that doesn't get celebrated enough, real craftsman, perfecting his craft, focused on a specific region, and his food has always been that of Tuscany. He taught me so much about confidence. And I remember one of the first months I was working for him, I was in the weeds and I was very Eeyore and very down on myself. And he said, to paraphrase, the reason why you're not as good as me, maybe never will be as good as me, is you're just not confident. You got to be fucking confident. And I've always remembered that thinking when it was told to me, I was thinking to myself, what a fucking dickhead. How could confidence? What are you talking about? I bring this up because I was having a conversation with Andrew Whitworth and Richard Sherman and Ryan Fitzpatrick and Carissa Thompson. Um, my Sometimes teammates on Thursday, Thursday Night, football, Night football, football Family. The Thursday Night Football Family. We were talking about some quarterbacks. And they were saying that if you don't have that confidence, that belief that you're going to walk into a room and make it work, that you're going to make miracles happen, that you have to, whether you're a, a first-year quarterback or a 20th-year veteran, you have to have this confidence. And once you lose that confidence, it almost never comes back. And losing your confidence is in similar to golf terms. You have the yips or maybe that I remember in baseball when Brett Boone or Aaron Boone couldn't throw the ball correctly. Mm -hmm. You're just in your head. And that, that mentality, I think, is crucial for a cook, particularly a chef that's leading. And it's not about being bravado, full of bravado. It's not about being a motherfucker, but you have to have some motherfucker in you, Hmm. right? And it's not easy to hold that edge forever. Hmm. And confidence comes and goes. And I think when you add that in with imposter syndrome, because the difference between a cook and say an athlete is it's much more ephemeral and there's no game and there's no definitive score, et cetera. This is, you're, you're never sure of your, your, your footing and it's, it's always changing. And I kept on thinking about this because I was talking to a friend of mine and you would be surprised that some of the greatest chefs in the world lose their confidence all the time. Mm-hmm. It's okay to lose your confidence. It's okay to have imposter syndrome. It's okay to think that you're not good enough. I don't know any chef that hasn't gone through their periods of what am I doing? I currently feel that way. I feel that way all the time. I even felt that way when I was peak confidence. Mm. But to get it back, I think it's different. I don't know what it's like to be an athlete. I think for a cook to get their confidence back, you got to cook. As simple as that. You got to just start working with food. And so much of being an executive chef is not cooking. And you take, you're taken away from the thing that you're best at. And that's it. Is you got to just find time to cook. And it, sometimes it doesn't come back because we get older. but I keep on thinking about the 20th anniversary and Marco and confidence. And that to me is something that cooking schools and people really never talk about. It's a mentality that you're going to make it happen in face of all obstacles and odds that it's going to work hard 
to describe somewhat ineffable. But when the the TNF team was talking about it, I was like, oh man, like I understand that because if you're not confident, it's almost in some way mind over matter to some degree. So uh, not that this this point means much to anybody. No, I, I love this. I think what you're talking about is I, I, I love this connection between what the, the football guys were talking about, football guys, <laughs> the, the team, and you, because I've, I've said to you before, I think when I watch you or any chef that I really admire cook, there is a certainty you have about the decisions you're making in the kitchen. Let me, let me make this abundantly clear, and I, I can't make sure that this is 100% definitive, but if you imagine a chef that's full of confidence and they're crushing, they are certainly at their private moments full of doubt. And if you are somebody that doesn't have doubt, it's more than likely that you're not successful. <laughs> I think, yes. But I think having doubt in what you're saying is absolutely right. But acting with confidence. And it's like, it, it is a great comparison to a football player. If you're a quarterback and you have a moment's hesitation of like, I don't know if I can make this throw. I don't it, know if I should do this. Yeah, but it's a, it, it happens. You may not think so. You may be in a state of complete anxiety, filled with dread, imposter syndrome, and lacking confidence. And then a moment will arise. And again, which is why I think the bear is really good at this. That confidence when at the last episode, they're running the pass in the first five minutes and they organize the tickets. Well, granted, he wasn't the chef. That is a moment of, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And when you lead your team out of that, that's like quarterbacking a team down the field and winning a game-winning drive. It's not something that you would ever expect to happen, but you have to believe that it's going to happen. Yeah. I would also say that if you're racked with doubt and self-confidence is an issue, I think that if, you're, if you don't, it's a problem. It's a healthy thing to have this as a chef. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think the other thing I see you do, and I think when I see the comparison with football players as well, is like you make a confident decision in the kitchen, whether it's adding ingredient, taking ingredient, taking something out of the oven, whatever, whatever, not even knowing if it's, if it fails, doesn't matter because I will make the next move and get out of it. So a quarterback throws the ball and he throws an interception. It's fine. We'll get it back on the next one. Like that's, that's confidence. Um, and lastly, I wanted to talk about Yes Restaurant. We spoke about it before in our um, balderdash. I got a text message, and he's probably pissed because I never respond, <laughs> from our good friend Josh Skeens. And he said, this is the restaurant you need to support. Uh, so thank you, Josh. Sorry, I, I got it internationally, and I, I just, I lost track of I can't spend those, those limited texts internationally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to so, be so mad. I know he's going to be so mad. So Yes Restaurant, with three S's, it's in downtown. But it's every kind of restaurant. It's the kind of restaurant that I feel like we need more of. It's not exactly Japanese food that people are aware of. It's set up in a formula that maybe people aren't sure of because it's a pre-fee menu where you choose your things and there's some a la carte items. I don't know if people understand the cooking behind it and how he's using a Korean oven, which is a very different way. Um, and it's basically bencho ten on the other side. While they do have a small gas oven in the back, that's not part of service. And I would say it's a restaurant that has a pulse that's getting better. Is it a perfect, flawless restaurant? No. And I mean that as a compliment because they're trying to do things in a different way that maybe they've never done before, right? Serving lamb kidneys, that's an adventurous thing. Doing things differently takes time. I think it's a restaurant that everyone needs to go to and they need to support. Um, if I'm back for a good stretch, I'd love to visit it again. It's delicious. They're clearly 
procuring some of the best produce. One of our former cooks is one of the junior sous chefs there from Momofuku. Um, and Junta Yamasaki, he's a guy that is a real shokunin that wants to learn how to do things better. That's constantly evolving. You know, he could have just made udon the rest of his life. The fact that he has chosen an extremely difficult way of cooking, <laughs> like is very, very hard. I don't know if people understand that. And in a world where we are only celebrating seemingly the same kinds of foods, this is a restaurant that I hope people really embrace. And even though it's reached number one and it's been celebrating a lot of awards and publications, I find that it's not on the tips of a lot of people's tongues. Mm. So go check out Yes. If you're planning a restaurant, if you're planning a trip to Los Angeles, check out Yes. All right, let's take a break. All right, these are my three things for Christmas gift guides. Number one, I'm just going to attack wire cutter again. They say the, the Mac knife is the gift that you should give, the, the kitchen knife you should get. I do not think it's a good gift. I do, I'm not saying it's not a good knife, but it's not necessarily easy to sharpen. The traditional bevel on it is a 70-30 split, so it's not 50-50. I do not think for a home cook, a Japanese-style knife, even if it's a westernized Japanese-style knife, which it is, is the appropriate knife. You're just never going to use that kind of knife for detailed knife work. I just don't think so. I think you're better off with a Western-style Sentoku or German-style Wusthof Henkel chef knife. It's easier. It's much more sturdy. It's much. It's like an SUV. To me, a Westernized Japanese knife, and when I say a Sentoku, I say the Westernized Sentoku. That's a German Westernized Japanese knife. The Japanese Mac is a Japanese knife that's slightly Westernized. It's too finesseful. People aren't going to do it. I think the most important thing people need to know is how to sharpen a knife, mm-hmm. first and foremost. Do you need a sharp knife? Yeah. New, I mean, do you need a new knife? You should learn how to sharpen a knife. It should be about the, the course and the grits and what you need to do. I'm not saying some people don't, but more often than not, I think the knives in your drawer are plenty sharp enough. In fact, my knives just need, right? even in the studio, we need to constantly sharpen them. Um, so as a Christmas gift guide, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I would pop, I would recommend a, a Wusthof Santoku, which has the rounded blade. I think that's the one that I use more often than not. Um, and that's plenty good and definitely a little bit cheaper. Again, I don't like the premise. They said uh, it's eight years in a row. It's been our knife we recommend. For the data they have, they gave it to the kitchen, cafe, uh, kitchen crew at Le Cuckoo in New York. Yeah, it's anything sharp. It's fine. I don't want to spend too much time. I just fundamentally disagree with that assessment. It smells fishy to me, and I don't understand it. I think they chose it because it was a knife that's different enough that they could make their sort of bones on. You know, it's it's just not a knife that I would recommend. But clearly, I'm wrong because I look at the reviews and everyone's buying it. I just think it's full of shit. I mean, can I can I add because we you and I have talked about this before. Can I add one thing that I've thought about this exact thing a lot as well with the recommending this is the best kitchen knife. <laughs> and why sharpening your own knives is such a better alternative. You ever you know you ever buy like a new TV and like a new remote control and you have no idea where the buttons are anymore. You like, like the buttons are all in different places. That's like changing that's telling somebody to have a new knife shape. It's like saying, hey, I know you use Mac computers, Apple computers for the last 15 years. Here's a PC computer now. Like I sliced my finger on a knife recently because I was used to like the Santoku shape. The point goes down. It doesn't go up. I think the idea of just recommending saying like this is the best knife for everybody is faulty for that reason. Yeah, it feels good. 
And again, like it's affiliate link. So I'm just, I'm not saying it's proclaiming it's fish. It just, I don't know. I just think that they're better knives and it's an expensive knife. There are many other knives that you can have. All that matters is it feels good to you and it's a sharp That's knife. Right. So again, I'm not saying the Mac sucks. I think it's just what they're advertising is patently false. So also giving a knife in Chinese culture, very, very taboo (laughs) as a high end gift. If you're looking about a Christmas present, I would say a copper pipe, copper pan is good. Mm. Heston is very good one. All clad is very good, but I do like, even though this is pricey, the Heston walk. Oh my God. It's, It's beautiful. On the super, super high end. Again, I'm not saying high end and expensive is bad. If you get value, I've been saying this time and time again, if you have the means, and this is like buying a small car, a Thermomix, which is like 1700 bucks, mm-hmm. I think it will pay itself off very quickly. You know, the win above replacement is you're getting a star player and you are going to win some games because of that. It's expensive as fuck. I'm also saying it would be difficult for me because it's so expensive. But if you have the means, it's a hell of a gift. Uh, the other thing is... You know, there, there's Ninja that makes the one that's a little bit more affordable, but I still think Thermomix is the best in class. And really, the present that medium high end that is always good is a KitchenAid. Everyone needs a KitchenAid mm. or a booze block cutting board, which is around 200 bucks, right? Which is why if you don't want to spend those amounts, you can just get someone some Cometeer or some anything. I agree with the NETA. I agree with the Cometeer. And an and expensive and a nice cutting board is, here's another reason why that's a great gift idea, Chang. That's the type of thing that just hurts so bad to spend myself. It hurts so bad. I'm just going to plow through PFFW. Do it. The New England Patriots are going to lose to the Pittsburgh Steelers. We, we have a like a 25% win rate. So if you're taking a bet, you should bet against me. But I think the Pittsburgh Steelers are going to win with their team that I don't understand how they win fucking games. <laughs> Mainly because I think that Pittsburgh is going to win strictly on Primanti. Primanti's brothers only. <laughs> Right. Their sandwich offense. Very strong. I mean, I, I should say that, yeah, you can do the whole thing about lobster rolls and Boston cream pies, et cetera, et cetera. But again, PFFW is about this moment, right? This and like moment. now is not the moment to be eating the lobster roll. Now is the moment and to Heinz be eating ketchup the- is producing the Pittsburgh area. So I'm just saying they got dessert. That's the burnt almond tort. I'm going, I'm going with Pittsburgh for the win. And I'm going to take the, 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 the spread. It's six and a half points. <laughs> This is how we're going to improve the PFFW. Yeah. It's like, we got to get our, we got to get to 50% real fast. <laughs> the algorithm's saying. Just bet with the house. Bet with the house. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back with Van Lathan. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got 
a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. You did a podcast with Bill last night too? Yep. What time that end? Uh, it was, that was kind of early. We were watching the games. And then we just jumped in the room and podcast. Mm-hmm. Did you just come from another one just now? Mm-hmm. Cranking out the content, baby. <laughs> My, God. My <laughs> God. You jet lagged? Yeah, I'm still jet lagged. Charlamagne says it's the first time he's ever been jet lagged. He said he's never been jet lagged before, but that flight kicked his ass. 17 and a half hours. Straight. Yeah. Oh, you had you don't stop anywhere? No. Yeah, I don't even think he stayed long for the F1 race. I don't know that F1 is really his thing. I gotta say, you love it. No, I don't think it's better. It's better on like most sports, watching it on a TV, like you were doing with the Podfather Bill Simmons yesterday. Yeah, absolutely, right? yeah. I think it's important for everybody if you like sports to just see and hear it for like five minutes. Uh huh. But you can't hear anything because it's like so loud. And honestly, you're watching with a lot of Euro trash. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it. And then the worst kind of fan is the person that is American that's really into F1. Yeah. But they're overcompensating because they really just got into it because of the Netflix show. Right. And I'm like, it's a lot of people. It's 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 so it's growing so fast that people are like, man, you gotta get into F1. You gotta come to the F1. Do I? <laughs> I'm not so sure. I mean, by the way, no shade to anyone who loves F1, but I don't think I don't need another thing to go to. I got a lot of stuff to go to. I got I got a here's my hot take. I think NASCAR is cooler. You like NASCAR better? I don't know. I just think the whole thing is more real. Okay, how? I mean, people are getting drunk. Okay. They don't get drunk enough one? They're drinking champagne and shit. Ah. What are you looking at when you, in, in the 99.9% of the time when a car's not going by you? What are you watching? You're watching, you're looking at the TV. You're watching TV, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. The announcers on F1 are great. And so it, good. I think F1 is great watching it live on TV. Uh huh. Because I don't think the TV feed is the same when you're there um, and you get to hear all the audio and everything. I've been to a NASCAR race and that just feels like a real event. This is my thing with live sports. First of all, I'm against most things live. He's an in, you're an endorsement too. I I'm know an endorsement. I'm against most things live. I don't like live music. I don't like, I'm against most things live. Here's my thing with live sports. There's too much at stake. Mm. A couple of weeks ago, I went to the LSU-Texas A&M game. I went all the way down to Baton Rouge to see the football game. I hadn't been in the stadium in a while. I wanted to see it. Mm. If they lose, the entire trip is blown, yeah. right? If they lose on TV, cut it off, turn on Brazzers, whatever. It is, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's fine. <laughs> but if you get up and go to the Laker game, which the Lakers have a fucked up record when I'm in the house, right? They just always lose. Somebody does something stupid, throw the ball out of bounds, whatever. If you And they lose, you're like, I could have watched these motherfuckers lose in the comfort of my own home with my dog, you know? Mm-hmm. And so to me, there's just too much at stake. It's loud. There's people everywhere. TMZ, whoa, what's up, bro? Where the fuck is Harvey? All of that shit. 
I could be at the crib. That's all I'm saying. But that's because you're invested in LSU winning, right? Like you're invested in going. Oh, like, it's yeah. it's unhealthy. Yeah. We're going to get into food, and I want to talk a little bit about college football. You said something that I've been telling everybody because it knocked me on my ass. It really did. I'm not even sure how. I think it's because on your podcast, you talked about Keith Lee, which we'll get into in a second. But we got into talking about Mr. Chow's. Mr. Chow, yeah. And how I said uh, the one in Tribeca, it's where you see a lot of NBA ball players. Yeah. You see a lot of celebrated black African-Americans eating there. Yeah. And that is like what it's sort of become known for, in my opinion. Yeah. And a lot of investment banker finance bros. Mm-hmm. And you said something that I was like not prepared for. Yeah. That Mr. Child has become a marker of black exceptionalism. If you can go to Mr. Child. That's like when something, when something gets branded like that, when you hear Rick Ross go, I take a bitch to Mr. Child. Mm. It's over. It's over. Like wherever you go, Mr. Child is going to be like, because there's not a lot. When I first got out here, that's kind of where people want to go. Mr. Child, it was Philippe Child, it was the Childs. And you would you would go anytime you would go in there. How did you hear about it? Just from songs? From songs, from other people, and from where people go on their birthdays. Mm -hmm. Where do you want to go on your birthday? Right, you on your birthday you want to go. Nobu took this over for a while. Drake just fucked up Nobu. No, the whole I bet the whole fucking colony of Malibu is pissed off at Drake. <laughs> Drake, they had their own little thing. It was on the beach. Everybody was chilling. Drake and Future mentioned it in the song, and then every girl from IG had to be taken there to make sure you had bread. But like, if you go to Mr. Child in Miami, which is in the W Hotel, we're there. Go to Mr. Child in Beverly Hills, we're there. It, it becomes branded as a it go-to restaurant in the culture, and then we got to go there. Crustacean is one of those places because we were talking about Crustacean a little bit. Crustacean was a place that we would all go to and we'd all experience it together culturally here. And it became a place where if you had a little money and you wanted to be seen, you would go there. It wasn't necessarily about the food. It's not that the food was bad. It was just that it became like Moet, or Louis or any of the other things, it became something that like, hey, you got some bread, you just got drafted, you go to this place. I think it's worn off now. I think there are other restaurants that have that have popped up. And I also think that culturally, our food palette and the foods that we're trying, it's becoming a little bit more diverse. And people are getting into these little niches of restaurants that they like. But overall, if you're 21, you just got signed to a record deal. Cash money got you. You're doing good. You're out the hood. You're with your people. We're going to Mr. Child, motherfucker. <laughs> We're going to garlic noodles. Get them fucking popping. Keep bringing them out. The whole nine. We in Miami. It's, it's ladies coming right off the beach from Miami walking into the Mr. Child. Come here, girl. I'm a cornerback. I play for the Dolphins. It's going down. It's the whole thing. I mean, that's the way it goes. And, it, and these things become trendy and they catch on, you know? So, like, one of the most interesting, I think the most interesting, like, cultural, social, anthropological dynamics in the entire world, right? Because, like, it's a symbol of power. It's a symbol of, like, I made it. I got bread. I can afford to go to Mr. Child and take my girl to Mr. Child. I can buy Moet. I can. But then you and then you you make it more powerful in doing so. Once it becomes part of the culture, Mr. Chow gets that cultural currency. Mm-hmm. Cristal got that cultural currency. And they said, 
fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, other brands, some brands did that, but then other brands, like Crystal did that, and then they fucked up, and then Hove came in, and when Hove came in, he brought his own liquor to the situation. But other places embraced it. Right. I think it's something like, I'm not going to get, you can't speak for all black Americans, but I'll tell you this. So I think about LVMH. People as Louis Vuitton, Moet, and Hennessy. Those are legacy brands, Mm. right? Legacy brands, been around for a very, very long time. To me, they're super black Mm. because these were the markers of American success that like some of the more capitalistic um, uh, parts of hip-hop told me. Hennessy is is a part of me. My mother used to put Hennessy in my bottle. Like, I was a very fussy, like, high-strung baby. And I remember I was, uh, I'm standing there, this was my, I graduated, and my parents let me drink a little bit. And I was like, yeah, I want some Hennessy and Coke. And my grandmother went, oh. And, she, and my mom was like, what? She's like, nothing, nothing. And my grandmother went, mm-hmm. <laughs> it stuck. And I'm like, what? My, my, my grandmother goes, Van, when you were a kid, you would not stop howling. You wouldn't stop making noise. And your mom was stressed out. I told her, take a half a thimble of t- Hennessy, put it in your bottle, and it would knock you right out. And, I, and I'm freaking out. I'm like, yo, y'all was getting me drunk? I got ADHD. ADHD. I understand why. Wow, this explains the whole Brazzers thing. I was on drugs. <laughs> I was drunk since I was a kid, right? And so, but what I'm saying is when I look at those brands, I go back to say that those are brands that actually, to, for the most part, um, Hennessy... Uh, you know, it's just a it's a it's a brand that people drink in the in the black community, but all communities. Those brands embrace hip hop, and now when you look at Bernard Arnault, that's the most valuable company in the entire world, right? So what you have is like black cultural uh, ambassadors in the form of rappers and other cool people doing worldwide work and spreading the gospel of those places everywhere with the power of black culture. That goes back to just kind of us. Like Prime 112 in Miami is another place that when you go there, you know it's going to be a bunch of rappers, a bunch of, because you start to hear about it. And it's not so much even about the food. It's about the scene and the fact that you can afford it. I think things are getting a little bit more adventurous and daring now. But what we were talking about, when people ask me, well, why do you always go, like, why do you see a lot of black people in Michigan Child? Why do you see a lot of black people? It's because... A lot of times when you're striving for something and you're coming from somewhere, they're markers of American success that, you know, you tell yourself about. And some of them are restaurants. Wow. How come we've never heard about this in mainstream food media? Because we don't talk to y'all about that. Like, y'all, <laughs> y'all, like, you know like, we, like, I mean, I think two things. Number one, even me growing up, there was a part of food that I didn't get. So everybody who cooked for me when I was a kid loved me, like, to the nth degree. Like, food was a ministry for my mother. Like, she would plate the food, do everything for you, and then she'd do one of these. She'd sit down and she'd just, like, watch you eat. And it's so fulfilling to her. And mm. everybody that cooked for me was like that. I actually never thought that people in restaurants or people that made food, that they cared about it like that. I thought it was a business for them. And then I get to meet chefs and people who their entire life is putting tastes together. Their entire life is thinking about that stuff. So there's a part of the adventurous thing. I'm from a place where food is a huge deal, right? I'm from South Louisiana. I know people care about their food, but it, it seems like they more care about feeding people than artistry. So when I would go to a restaurant to eat, I wasn't thinking about the craft that was going into it. I was thinking about whether or not I could afford it and whether or not it was good. 
And I think those were things that people from my community thought about. Well, if you didn't go to a restaurant, it's because either the restaurant wasn't good or, the, or you couldn't afford to go there. But going to the restaurant itself was an accomplishment. The fact that you could get into a place was an accomplishment. The fact that you could afford a place. And I think that's not just in the black community, but I think it means a little bit more to people who haven't read, maybe had something. As far as other places, I think sometimes the disconnect is a lot of people that I know don't want to be that adventurous with what it is that they're eating or they haven't wanted it to be. So if you tell me, uh, well, what, we, what we've done, we've taken this chutney, used uh, it's a, a basil thing, and it's, it's something that's really going to, you're going to get a little hint of smoke, and then after you're going to get that hint of smoke, going down there, you're going to feel like you're cruising down the slopes, the Alps, and that's where, that was my... I'm like, yo, man, can you bring the fucking sausage out and put it on the fucking thing? I don't know nothing about that. But I think now everything is a little bit more adventurous. Like I watch shows like Top Chef or whatever, and I'm like actually inspired by why people cook, how they cook, like their ability to like take different parts of the world and put them into what they're doing. And it makes me want to be a little bit more adventurous in it. But that's also because I'm from a place now where I can, all of this stuff is, it's, I don't want to talk too much, but it's, there's food insecurity in here. There's food deserts in here. That's the fact that when you eat, if you don't have a lot of money and you're disappointed by your food, you feel like you've been robbed. Worst feeling in the world. Right. You know what I'm saying? If you don't have a lot of bread and you go out to eat something and it's not good, you feel like they've taken something from you. Yeah. Like, if I were to get my grandmother on the phone right now and I would ask my grandmother about different restaurants about around Baton Rouge, the visceral nature, which we she would describe a bad restaurant experience, would floor you guys. She just doesn't want to eat bad food when she takes the time and the money. It, the adventurousness is not what it's about. It's about her going and getting the comfort. Mm -hmm. You think a lot of these other restaurants, the Michelin Top 50 bullshit, um, that will start to enter the, the black cultural consciousness? Oh, I think it already has. I think because I think things are getting more, I think a lot of it was due to like just education and knowing that there's a way to judge restaurants. And they've always been black foodies, always. Like we love food. But I think now uh, people are asking themselves a, different questions. Like, and I don't mean to speak for 40 million people. I'm not doing that at all. But I'd say that like even within the community of people that I talk to, like I can tell you about the first time my brother told me, yo, man, you getting that fucking steak overcooked. Like, this is a real thing. This is a real thing. It was like, he's like, just do me a favor. Just do me a favor. All right, because, you know, I'm out with my friends and you're fucking embarrassing me. Just do me a favor. Try it right now. I'll pay for the whole meal. I'll pay for the whole meal. The entire meal. If you just let them cook the steak the way it's supposed to be cooked. And then I try it and I'm like, it's better this way. But understand, when, when you look at things from where I'm from, food is safety. And food that's not cooked all the way through can kill you. So part of our understanding of what we're doing is how to make stuff that might not be that healthy taste a little bit better and feel a little sure. safer. So when you, want, when you get a piece of cow, cook this shit all the way through. Everything else in society is trying to kill you. You don't want this piece of meat to kill you too. And I know that seems like way too deep about it, but there's some insecurity around things that, like, that we'll try based upon experiences that we've had. And I think that's dissipating as we have more conversations about it. Yeah, I mean, like, we're, I'm with you on the well-done steak. But I actually think some of that stuff 
is also gatekeeping, right? Some of that mm. is just like, let me block you out from this because it's supposed to be this way. And if you don't like it this way, you're uncultured. Like and some that's of that's where gatekeeping. I feel a lot shit. of it is gatekeeping from a media perspective too. Like the gatekeeping is, it's as fucked up as we're. If you don't, like, <laughs> yeah. if you, hey, listen, you're 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 a heathen if you don't like your pasta al dente. It's like, why do I want my pasta al dente? That's gross. there's a right way and there's a wrong way, and they don't they want to control who's in. Yeah, I think that's true, but I do think that what sometimes me I take all of these things to me I couldn't care less. Like my mom makes a steak, the steak is well done, it tastes great, it's tender, the whole thing, right? I do think though that for me sometimes, particularly with food or just trying things, right? There's a fear when I'm talking to other people about other things that there's something that they're missing. Sure. I want people to get the most out of life. I want people to taste all the stuff. I want them to understand that sometimes, particularly people that I grew up with, that sometimes the bad experience is the experience. Sometimes like you'll the, the meal that you had that was fucked up, but you tried it is just as cool a memory as uh, the best meal you ever had before in your life. We went to Santorini a couple of years ago, me and Kalika, and when we went there, we ate at all of these places, right? We had this one little place. It was this little fish house next to the hotel, and it was some of the best fish I've ever had before in my life, right? Ridiculously good. And another place that we went to, and I'm not trying to be mean to nobody, but it was supposed to be like one of the greatest restaurants in the world, and it was one of the best places ever. And they're like, you gotta go here. We went there, and there was a story to the menu and all of this stuff. And I bet that people go there every single day and they love the food. I'm not trying to diss anybody or take away from what anybody put into something. And it physically made me sick. Mm. Like, it physically made me sick. I, I tasted something and I was like, ooh. And, and I was like, I looked at Kalika. I was like, I'm about to throw up. And something didn't agree with me. So we leave. We hit the streets. We're in fear. We're walking around. I was nauseous. We're laughing. The whole thing. It's, it's like that experience of what happened that night at the restaurant, the food didn't agree with me, but it's not something that I would have traded for anything. It was a fun, cool little experience around trying something. And sometimes when you're guarded, when your experiences are a little bit more about survival and not living life to the fullest, you take less chances. You're a little bit more conservative with things that you try or you might do. And so I think if there was anything, I understand the gatekeeper you guys are talking about because a lot of people are like, you're a cultured swine. You don't like to see a little red in your stay. But I will just ask people, have you tried it before you don't want to fuck with it? Just, just, just try it. See if you like it. It might change your life. Going back to Mr. Chow's. So <laughs> I wanted to understand how that even happened. Right? I have no clue. So the, he's got a documentary out on, his, on HBO. It's really good. I, I was... I got to admit, I, I had typecast Mr. Chow as a certain kind of individual. I, I know one of his ex-wives quite well. And, you know, well-to-do guy. But I didn't know anything, actually. Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing. Immigrant, really tough upbringing. But ultimately, got into the art world. And this is how it leads into hip-hop. Moves his successful restaurant in London. But when he was in London, because he was always such an outcast as an Asian guy. Okay. He wanted to speak hang out with other people that were outcasts. Those happen to be some of the most influential artists of the past 20th century, right? Mm. And as the art world goes, goes bananas, he, you know, opens up in New York and LA, becomes best friends with Basquiat and all the whole New York art scene. So it became the, like one of the, like the centers of intellectual, artistic, countercultural thought. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. And the thing that was interesting was he wanted to elevate Chinese food by serving Cantonese-style Chinese food, but with the best Italian-French service. Mm. So it was this 
contrast that had never happened. Because he was this sort of uh, new wave thing, he embraced everything new. All of these early rap artists that started to come in that would get rejected in other high-end restaurants because of their jewelry, because of their hats, because of their sunglasses. He was like, come on in. See, the ubiquity of the restaurant culturally in hip-hop, I didn't even get where it came from. I just know that it did. You know what I'm saying? LL Cool J's talking about how that's where he felt at home. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And then that leads to the next generation wanting to go there, so on and so forth. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Mr. Chow happens because he basically couldn't uh, have a day where he wasn't ridiculed for being Chinese. Wow. And I was like, huh. And then another group that feels traditionally marginalized Black people and not just black people, but rappers and not just rappers, but nouveau riche rappers, guys that come in and they show a lot of money and stuff like that. They have a place that they can eat and then they tell you this is the place that you're going to eat when you get bread. And then an 11 or 12 year old Van Lathan is in Beverly Hills and he sees Mr. Child and he goes, I got to fucking go to Mr. Child. Man. Mm-hmm. And then you go there and you go, eh. but is it? <laughs> but, 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 but still, though. But still, respect though, the game. Respect, respect does, the game. Man. Respect the hustle, and you, it's something you got to do. So I take all of my sort of jadedness about Mr. Chow's back because, like, fuck, Dave, I had no idea. Yeah, that was amazing. Because mm-hmm. if you look, think about it, a lot of those artists of the you know that abstract '60s, '70s, '80s era, they were like the early day hip hop artists in terms of how they were perceived because they were countercultural too, right? Mm-hmm. They were a rejection of everything that was there, and he didn't make it seem like it was a bad thing, like. Everything was super extravagant, mm. luxury, because he wanted people to feel that way. And I was like, shit, I was dead wrong about Mr. Chow. Right. And what don't you have access to if you're from a deprived situation? Luxury. Luxury. Luxury is nothing but elevated comfort. That's all it really is. Like, a luxury is elevated comfort. It's, like, I get on the plane sometimes, and... Like, even when I get on the plane sometimes, you know, you, you're in the little thing and you got the little bag and it's got all the stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And you think, God damn, you want me to feel good on this plane. <laughs> you gave me some eye cream. And like, you want, you care. Like, sir, what would you like before you land, or before you take off? And I'd be like, nah, I don't want anything. And then there'll be people like, Van, Van, tell the lady you want a mimosa. I know you want a mimosa. <laughs> like, is it okay if I have a mimosa? Sure. We'll bring you whatever you want. I'm like, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. this is great. And those are the things you don't have. So elevated comfort becomes luxury. And then, you know, you're doing your thing. You're eating that Mr. Chow. I love that. Even on like, even on what you just said, though, Chang, about like, I want to take Chinese food and merge it with French service, whatever, European service. There's like, just on a thematic creative level, there's like, it's simpatico with hip hop too, right? Like sampling and like, I'm going to take my art form and mix it with this art form because I can make something new out of it. And like, I think that's a super cool parallel like, too. Everybody has to tie their own bow tie. Everything is particular way. And I'll be honest, like, I've eaten at Mr. Chow a handful of times. I've never been impressed with the food. I've been jealous of their business uh-huh. because they sell those chicken fucking satay skewers for $38 a pop that is literally 25 cents. Yeah. <laughs> That's the shit I'm jealous of. Yeah. But I never understood it till literally talking to you for this pod. I was like, oh, there's a fucking deeper artistry mm-hmm. involved in everything he's doing because that's not something that I was ever trying to understand is that level of as you say, black exceptionalism, that level of, hey, this is a flex of me showing that I feel good, that I've, I'm being treated a certain way. Yeah. And that's what it was. Because 
one thing for certain, Mr. Chow's has that kind of service where mm-hmm. you don't get in a lot of places. Right. Well, what I think is, is uh, you know, this might get a little too abstract, but like what I think is, is very interesting about it, though, is when it becomes part of the culture, when it becomes part of black exceptionalism, it's not always a one-way thing. Like you, like black culture, hip-hop culture can change the way something, a luxury good is consumed and, and shown and, 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 and taken and visited as opposed to like the danger of of like luxury being the the end end goal is like are we all just like moving toward the way fancy white people do things <laughs> is like that well, how see, we're headed and see, and see that's that, it. and see that's the question right the question now that really is being asked and and, and negotiated amongst black people is what's our version of yeah. luxury right and so there've been different restaurants cuz you know people open up elevated restaurants there's a great restaurant here in LA, not too far from where I'm from, it's called My Two Cents, and it's like vegan soul food, elevated soul food, whatever. And it's something you gotta taste. Now, soul food to me, you can only elevate it so much because you gotta put your motherfucking foot in that motherfucker, right? You gotta put your foot in them greens. You gotta put your foot in them goddamn red red beans rice. I don't. I want it the 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 shit. I want the feel the the shit. But we're starting to ask ourselves. Okay, cool. Well, here you have hundred year old brands, hundred fifty year old brands with Moet, Hennessy, Louis Vuitton, stuff like that. What's going to be our 100-year-old brand? Like, what's going to be our version of the food that we've, American food culture that we've contributed so much to as Black Americans, so much to, we've made such a, a contribution to how people eat in this country. Well, what's going to be our elevated version of it? And chefs, to me, Black chefs all over the country are answering that question. All over the country, they're answering the question of what does it look like for us to own these spaces? What does it look like for us to own the liquor brands, for us to own the hospitality brands, for us to own all of that stuff, for it to come from us and be of us and not be a monolith, right? Not be all the same food that you would get in Louisiana or Texas or Mississippi, for it to be a reflection of the chef and their travels, their experiences and all of that stuff. I think we're seeing that more than ever too now which is changing the dynamic a little bit and how we and how we taste and how we eat. I think what will be interesting is to see, you know, like the, the, the hard part about this whole thing is also the change of, of innovation in like service style and things uh-huh. like that. Because you think about this, luxury, traditionally, whether you can afford to buy Louis and Hennessy and whatever has always been served by our people. <laughs> like, yeah. We're the people who are serving it. You're right. right? Yeah. So like, what does it look like if you're not serving it? Instead of just being on the other side of the table, what does that look like? Yeah. No, uh, you're right. I think for sure the the idea of what it means to be a black chef is, this is going to be a very different era because they can express themselves. They can own their own restaurants and they're finally getting the praise that they should, right? You know, whether it's Paul or Kwame and, 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 and uh, Mashama, excuse me. It's happening and growing. And that's going to influence a whole nother generation. But what about, as you say, black culture finally just like taking things that were never theirs and then just, this is ours now, mm. <laughs> right? Because I keep on thinking, you know, I've seen Jay. Jay Jay-Z is really into fucking wine. Uh-huh. He's got probably one of the best wine collections, but he doesn't rap about it. I don't uh-huh. think that he does. Yeah. But, but you know, wherever you see him, like he, his wine taste has like been contagious throughout. Like, I have friends, you, talk, you, you talked about Charlemagne, you saw him at the F1, right? We went to uh, Mastro's one time. This is years ago, like three, four years ago. And he asked the people at Mastro's if they had a specific red wine. 
And I'm like, what are you? He's like, nah, man. He's like, I was with the guys from Rock Nation with JNM and they were drinking this. And I would have never heard of that wine had that not come from him, then got to him, then got to me. So I, so even guys like that, even when they're not rapping about it, they are influential because their taste, they're tastemakers, and we respect what it is that they say. I can't remember the name of the wine, but it was fucking delicious. Like Jay's friends with some of the most successful up and coming, especially younger billionaire people in New York. And like he's tied in with the same wine guys that I'm friends with. Mm. He's getting from the source the same shit that you anybody else would get that's at the upper upper echelon as he should. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like that that has to happen the same way LL wrote about it, talked about it when he went to Mr. Chow. So maybe the next cultural marker is some of these very exclusive wine vintages and producers are going to become much more sure. So I mean, all of this stuff, right? It's like let's look at. The, the narrative and the story of Jay-Z is someone who came from a specific place, had a specific lifestyle, and then becomes a rapper, but not just a rapper, becomes a mogul, a businessman, and then becomes a conduit to this American luxury, this American achievement that a lot of people want. Now, we can have a conversation about you know, capitalism and the worship of material things and stuff like that and all of that stuff. And we can talk about as a community how much of that needs to be balanced with freedom and dignity and integrity and all of those things that everyone can access. But at the same time, sometimes I just want to drink some nice motherfucking wine. Yeah. And the question is, how do you know which is the nicest motherfucking wine to drink is that there it eventually has to be somebody who drinks the nicest motherfucking wine and then tells you this is the nicest wine. And as it's wine. happening, because you experienced that through Charlemagne. Right, right. right. It's as, happening. It's, as it's happening, right? And what you essentially want is this cultural diffusion that is contagious amongst people that are sharing the same spaces, right? We talk about this, it happens everywhere else, right? I hear an artist, I'm somewhere, I'm like, I'm, I'm in a new city, I'm in Memphis, I'm in Dallas, I'm somewhere, I'm like, Damn, bro. I heard this guy. I put my boys on him. Before you know it, the music spreads. Like, joy is the most viral thing that you can have. Experiences are the most viral things you can have. Like, when you describe the sensation from eating at a place, the way you talk about it will make somebody be like, I have to have it. We were going to talk about Keith Lee a little bit later. There's this one place that he visited while he was in Atlanta. I have to have the food. I have to have it because I could tell he was being honest about it. And when we're talking about stuff like Hove or some of these other people, uh, really well-traveled people. These are things that I don't even, I'll speak for me, that I didn't even know really existed, right? I didn't know existed. I, I, when I visited Santa Barbara, I went on a wine tasting and I'm like, Jesus Christ, some wines there were amazing. When we went to Santorini, I didn't know I was in Greek wine, into Greek wine because I had never been to Greece before. You didn't know you loved minerality. So right. Much. I didn't know I loved acidity <laughs> and all of that stuff. I didn't know that I liked it because I'd never been to Greece before. And so I go to, I go to Greece and I'm like, ooh, and he's like, you want the red? I'm like, no, uh, give me the white that you said. Because I can, I can taste it all in here. It's flinty. It's flinty, and I'm eating it with a nice, and I, I come back, and now every six to eight weeks, at the same winery in Santorini, I get back and I have three or four bottles mm. sent over. Because on a nice Saturday night when I'm watching the game, I like to drink my Greek wine. And so I think that you have to be sort of an apostle or, or a, uh, an evangelist of experiences sometimes for people, for them to resonate with people. Speaking of evangelism, I've been saying for a while that, and you had some good takes about Keith Lee and especially some of the the stuff that happened down in Atlanta. 
I think he's the most important food critic in America. Wow. I do. And I feel like he has filled a void that has always been there. But food media, which is basically writing stuff and making stuff for an audience that isn't necessarily black, uh-huh. it was always there. Mm. They just never did it. And I think he's probably the most important food critic in America today. Mm. And yeah, you could say the New York Times and Michelin Guide. But when you're talking about the power of one individual to make or break restaurants that never got the shine before, he's doing something that is revolutionary. And I think it's a testament to the democratization with uh, having a platform in social media. I think he's done it, whether it was an accident or not. It just shows you that it was going to happen at some point. And he's shining light on all kinds of businesses that never were talked about. Right, right. You know what's interesting about it is he zagged in a very specific way. Like, I know all kinds of people now. I know some of the greatest critics in the world, right? Some of the greatest critical voices in the world. And there's some, not all of them, there's some of them that arrive at their criticism basically by doubling down on how important their criticism is. Hey, I'm visiting this place. I'm telling you about this place. They don't know what they're doing, blah, 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 blah. And I'm saying this because I have this many years of doing this. I've been to this place. I've been with these people or whatever, right? And that's fine. Critic, criticism is important. Mm. It, people like to have conversations about this. There's no discipline worth doing where criticism isn't as important as discipline is because it pushes people further and faster and, and to me. Keith Lee does it the opposite way. He goes into places and says, I'm just a guy. And he goes, I don't know why people care about what I say. But you're automatically connected with his experience because he makes it accessible. Like, there are people that I know straight up in my life that if they say the food is bad, it's bad. Like, I was telling you about my grandmother, about my mother. My mom and my grandma take a bite of something. Ooh. Mm. It's right there. You can't, they, they're not going to write. They're not going to give you six graphs on it. But right there, oh, my God. And they, they keep going. My mother has had that experience wherever I've taken her. We've gone to places out here in Los Angeles. That is, my mom went and had the, the pastrami, the hamburger and the pastrami sandwich or whatever. No, no, no. The pastrami sandwich was the place downtown. Langers. Huh? Langers. Yeah. She went there and she had it. She was like, oh, it hit her. She was <laughs> fucking with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, oh, she, she, she was fucking with it. And you can't feign that. It's real. And he just puts that out there. And he always is honest but he is always accessible. So there's this place called Juicy Jerk. I'm not trying to do a, full, a free commercial, but they, had a, they, had, they did something different with their, their dry rub on their, on their um, they jerked the ribs, which I never even heard of. They jerked the ribs and he bit into it and he, he was like, the, the initial response was, huh. It was a taste that he had never confronted before. And I'm like, I gotta have that. I gotta, I gotta try that. And I don't think that we've ever, I've ever been so connected to somebody's opinion like on anything besides the source and when they would rate hip-hop, uh, when they, the one through five mic system and the source. But he, I just believe him. I trust him. I trust that what he's saying is real. I trust that he doesn't mean any harm, but I trust that it's really good when he says it's good and it's not as and it's bad when he says it's bad. And I don't know how we got there, but it's just something that resonates with But he's with also me. not trying to be negative. You know right. what I mean? He, sometimes. But I think that he scares the shit out of the food media. Oh, okay. Because he's literally amassed a following uh-huh. of individuals that have never been tapped into. Uh-huh. He's a free agent. And I think that he moves the needle way more than Eater, 
New York Times. Ultimately, he resonates, as you say, because it's accessible. Mm-hmm. And I think that if I was one of the editors of traditional food media, I'd be like, we're fucking toast. Mm. <laughs> well, because like you said, traditional food media has to always operate from a position of authority. Right. I'm a, I'm I'm an edu- I'm going to educate you about this thing. And I think that what Keith Lee is doing is like right at the center of everything we're talking about, right? Because it's like the zag really is there are no black food critics, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Traditionally, right. So right away you're like, okay, this is food media. Food criticism is the equivalent of a luxury legacy brand that has traditionally been closed off to people who look like Keith Lee, right? The other part is what you described, which is I went to a restaurant and made me sick, but I'm here. I'm here for experience. Uh I'm on this planet for experience and to try to find joy and joy is uh, accentuated by getting sick from eating fish. Right. right? So like, he's not there to be like, I'm here to wag my finger and pass judgment. He's just like, I'm looking for experience. And I think like that is what resonates. And we talk about this too, where it's like, I think Eating with Dave is fun, especially when you go somewhere he likes because he exudes like that joy. And mm-hmm. he, you always talk about this, like people like to watch Dave eat because mm-hmm. you look at it and you're like, damn, I want to do that too. Right. And I think Keith Lee has that too, where you're just like, this guy's just out for like to experience it. Yeah. I really believe, and it's not just a hot take. I fundamentally believe this, that there's going to be a lot of food journal theses or whatever, understand, trying to understand what the fuck happened. I think it's only <laughs> going to grow larger. And you're going to have a lot of people trying to copy him. But I think you're going to see an evolution of him because he's he's just, he's going to have that platform that has never happened in food criticism. Mm-hmm. Ever. It just never happened. So it's fascinating to watch. It is. It's fascinating to watch. And it's also fascinating to watch him challenge. And like I said, criticism pushes things forward, right? Like some of the conversation that was had around his Atlanta food tour about how things are in Atlanta, about service at certain places. As a community, I'm not from Atlanta, but I'm talking about as in the Black community. We ask ourselves a lot of questions sometimes. Sometimes these entrepreneurs don't have as much access. They don't have as much capital. They don't have as... Their, their teams aren't as experienced. So what's, what's okay for us to expect in terms of service, in terms of quality? What's okay for us to expect? How much cultural grace do we give a place? We all know places that we go and eat and get some of the best food where they don't even fucking care about the service. There was this place in Baton Rouge on Gardia called Rainbow Market. I don't care what anybody says who's the best poor boy in town. They don't give a fuck about your poor boy. They don't care. Okay? You go in there to the Rainbow Market, they got fake fubu up. They got old ass drinks in there. You'll go to Rainbow Market, it'll be like 2004. You'd be like, I don't know they still made tap soda. <laughs> Is that a joke? They, like they, they still got. They, I'm like, wait, hey, yo, man, where y'all getting tabbed from? You know what I mean? Like, and and you go there, and it was just the it was perfect bread, mm. like wrapped around perfectly fried catfish and shrimp, and it was for six bucks, right? We sometimes when we have restaurants and stuff like that, we're going, okay, what do we want the experience to be? Keith Lee is not just going and telling you whether or not the food is good. It's a big part of it, but he's talking about how is the service here. What were the rules here? And he's redefining or helping to redefine what we expect from the places that we frequent. And I think that's very positive and questions we need to ask ourselves. This is how you know he's scaring the shit out of traditional food media. They ain't writing about him. Oh. They ain't talking about him. You think somebody's going to try to come with a bag? You think Eater would ever like do a Keith Lee thing oh, or something? Of course they are. Yeah. But like right now, they're trying to figure out what the fuck do we do? Right. Right. You know, because 
look, like you are learning. I am learning about restaurants uh-huh. from him. And it's changing, as you said. He flipped the script. Yeah. When you flip the script in food, it's hard to fucking do, man. You're yeah. talking about an ancient way of doing things. And I just think that most people that are into food, so-called foodies, don't even understand what's happening. Wow. Because you have a lot of people that are covering the same restaurants that you're supposed to go to. That's all over social media. Uh-huh. But he's got a point of view. Yeah. That is quite simple, yeah. but it's him and his unique. I know about him and his sort of agoraphobic and he's a trained boxer. He's all, all these MMA, things. Like, his family, the whole I love, nine. I love yeah. it. I love it. And him being him is the, 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 you get to see behind the mask that you've always wanted. And I genuinely believe that he, we don't even understand what's being, like what's happening because it's never happened before. So right. I'm watching it closely to understand how this all plays out. We're partnering with Audi on a new segment, Progress You Can Feel. The fully electric Audi Q8 e-tron brings true craftsmanship and stunning performance to your journey. With fast charging capabilities and impeccable design, Audi knows that how we get there matters. So here's a story of how I got here. Sometimes in life, particularly when you're in the culinary world, you are surprised when you come across an ingredient that you had no idea that would fundamentally sort of change your career. I grew up in Northern Virginia. I spent a lot of time in Richmond. I would eat a lot of country hams. You would see country hams at the supermarket. They would be salted. They would be something you probably boil and rehydrate and slice and eat. Sometimes I would get them with a red-eye gravy at a diner in the South, which is basically like just, well, sometimes just coffee on a pan-fried ham steak, very salty. And I never thought much of it because I always liked the honey-baked hams. I always liked prosciutto. I loved any other kind of ham than a Southern country ham. Little did I know that it'd be the, the ingredient, the product that would really change how I viewed food. The, the day David Arnold, who was a food scientist and he ran a lot of the the laboratories at the French Culinary Institute, when it was named that back in the day in New York, he was a rabid fan. He was probably single-handedly the reason why American country hand production still exists because it was on its downturn. He, for the first exhibit for the Museum of Food and Drink, created an ex- a whole program based around American country ham and the ham belt. There's a certain latitude and longitude around the world from Parma to China to Italy and Spain where all the great hams are made. I'm not going to sort of bore you with all of that. But I was surprised to know that what he considered some of the best hams in the world wasn't in Italy, wasn't in Spain, but the band from Kentucky to Virginia, a little bit of Iowa and the Carolinas, Tennessee as well. Around that time, you know, I discover all kinds of hams that were made, including someone I talk all about, Alan Benton, who was known for his bacon, but he also made country ham, went to Colonel Newsom's. There's so many artisanal country ham makers. And the idea was something that Dave explained to me, that these hams were made by European immigrants, oftentimes coming from the places that made great European hams, the prosciuttos, the the jamon ibericos of the world. And they immigrated to America many years ago, and their family started making these ham products. And it became sort of a misnomer because no one really knew how to eat them. His belief was that you should slice them like it was prosciutto or iberico and then eat them simply. And that was a revolution to me. And nobody, when I say nobody, literally nobody in America was serving it this way. We had a restaurant called Sambar. We were serving food that was very different than anybody else at the time. We're open at 12 to 4 in the morning. We're almost about to go out of business. And because of that, 
There are times where you are more risk risky. I would say like you know, I was I was more willing to take risks than be risk adverse. Things that were maybe a bad idea, which is why we decided to put a whole host of American country hams on the menu and serve them with a red eye gravy. That was a celebration of America. It really became a calling guard of who we were as a restaurant, that if you knew about food, that you were going to eat something that was familiar to you. But it was also a stance that we we're going to try to source things in an independent, unique way that was delicious, but also uniquely American. We were going to have a point of view that was familiar, but distinctly different than anybody else out there. And it became at that time sort of one of the most important things we could have ever put on the menu. It was an ingredient as a child that I sort of laughed at. And now, thankfully, the rest of America has great reverence for it because you see it on so many restaurant menus. I know John and Vinny's has it and Teresi in New York and many restaurants in between have some kind of great artisanal American country ham producer. And it's made with quality. It tastes different than the European stuff and the Chinese stuff, but it's delicious. And it fundamentally changed the way I look about, think about food. There's progress and then there's progress you can feel. The Audi Q8 e-tron is just one model within the Audi e-tron family of fully electric vehicles, preparing for a future that is exhilarating, exciting, and thrilling. Audi knows that how we get there matters and they have the electrified vehicles to make the journey, well, electrifying. Audi, progress you can feel. Learn more at AudiUSA.com slash electric. Can I ask you guys a question? Yeah. One, do y'all like the bear? We talk about it. You know, I'm, I know Chris and the whole team there. Uh-huh. Um, I think it's the best food show, best TV or movie that, thing that's ever been made. Ratatouille is still always up there. I like it, but it's hard to watch. I would say that last episode captures the intensity of season two. Episode 10 captures the intensity of what it's like to be in the weeds in a kitchen and uh-huh. opening service, but it's still been dramatized. Uh-huh. Um, but they nail it. They nail a lot of the the themes, the things that I think traditionally when people would write about food and make a script, they glamorized it. They're talking about the dirty things. Uh-huh. So in that regard, I love it. And I love that people talk about it. I also think it's funny that people are, are sort of scared about a kitchen because that just shows you how it's been portrayed as this glamorized thing. Uh-huh. But in a lot of ways, I've lived that life too. So it's hard for me to, you know. Be- never, never, ever would have thought it was that intense. Hmm. I, you know, the first thing that it made me do was call up everyone that I knew that was a chef or chef adjacent and go, is that how it is in the thing? And they're like, it depends on where you work. The people that I uh, knew from New York and, um, and NorCal were like, it's pretty intense. This is a way of life. But I love the show. I think it's the best show on TV a 20 minute a 20 minute episode all in one shot with that type of intensity around something that's like it's not the end of the world if they don't fucking get all the fishes out or all the goddamn chickens out but it seemed like it I just wonder how chefs felt No that you view it as life and death you know and I I don't cook in the line and all that thing uh, that, that entire life is a a, a way of living uh-huh. that most restaurants don't do anymore that mm-hmm. is fading out okay and for better or worse right but the bear and Christor they've done a remarkable thing especially in 25, 22-minute episodes. It's sort of unbelievable. I've watched enough to get a sense of it. So, yeah, I I think that if you want to get a glimpse of what it's like, it's real. And they're really idiosyncratic things that are real. For example, where'd that guy go? I was just cooking with you. Oh, he's doing math in the back. (laughs) 
You know, people laugh like that shit happens, right? Where, where'd that guy where, go? Where, I was just, where, 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 where just he just oh he just walked what what you know like those are the things they, that you think don't happen, right? Or a catering event with kids, like all of these things they cobbled together. It's real because you have Maddie Matheson, you have you know Chris's sister, who's a one of the world's uh, just people with a wealth of experience mm-hmm. that have lived it and done it, mm-hmm. and they're not bullshitting. The things that do get dramatized are because they have to condense it in a time it's frame. It's a TV show and all of that. And there are things like, you know, no one's going to put a veal stock container on the top shelf in the walk-in. All right, right where it fucking fell over and it was jealous. Yeah. It's never going to happen. Right. That's how you know that it had to be manufactured. Right. But again, that aside, all the other food things that ever happened, mm-hmm. it's total bullshit. Yeah. You know, burnt is a perfect example of a hot piece of shit. Right. I've seen that. So fucking bad. Right. It, it irritates me when I think about it. The Is only, there a chef that reviews food movies? I think we've done it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, most people don't know and they don't care. They, the life of a cook and a chef, it's just not romantic enough. You don't think so? No. I think it is now. I think because of the movie Chef, let me tell you something. I don't, don't want to take you guys long, but let me tell you something about the movie hmm. Chef. The movie Chef, I think, got more chef's ass than any other movie. I'll tell you why. Number one, because he can, because he can get with ScarJo. Come and on, Sophia Vergara, <laughs> bro. So this guy, shout out to John Favreau. We're not getting into the whole thing. You do your thing, John Favreau. But I'm watching the movie with my girl, and there's two scenes that she always remembers. One is when he made the grilled cheese for mm-hmm. his son. Sure, he makes the grilled cheese for his son, and she goes, "Oh my god!" And I'm like, "Hey, that's not fucking." <laughs> All right, don't 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 get it twisted. That's not Leonardo DiCaprio. That's the fucking big guy from the replacements. All right, stop. And then when he's making the food for ScarJo, and you have one of the most beautiful women in the world sitting there, he fucking looks like the sexiest man alive, mm. and it works. It, it like the whole thing works. It's a very sexy food movie. Uh, it's the one thing I told John that is like, come on, man, that's not realistic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest, man. Because <laughs> Dave goes home, he's like, "Great, check this out." Oh, she's, she's like, like "Oh, okay. she's, she's what I will say it's a skill, you know. Like for those that can cook, it's a skill to be able to make something, and it's a sensual thing. It's, Food porn. Whoever came up with that combination of words is a genius because it's way better than celebrity chef. But food porn and porn, it does, and I've seen it. I've seen. I've had an open kitchen for most of my career. I have seen that that pleasure that both men and women have when they eat something so fucking good. Before we get you out of here, like, in one minute. Sure. Can you distill how you feel about the college football player? Oh, God. So one minute, real quick. I'm not going to take it long in this situation. Complete fucking bullshit. Total bullshit. Total bullshit. All right, one minute. The reality is, either we're playing a fucking sport, or we're fucking doing a dog show. To where it's fucking subjective about which dog is the prettiest and all of that. They played 13 games down there in Tallahassee. They won 13 motherfucking times. And they won with their guy. Hope Jordan gets healthy. And they won without their guy. If that's not good enough for them to go play for the national championship, then we need to reassess what it means to play the sport. That's not a diss on any other program. But what I'm saying is they played the games. They won the games. They deserve to play. Anything else is a bunch of horse shit. I think this is one of the biggest travesties. I've been watching college football since I was a baby. One of the biggest travesties I've ever seen. 
Just like that. It's like some minority report shit, right? It's just Weird. like, why even play the fucking game? Why, why play even the play game? the games? If, if you can just gonna, guess. If, you, if you're not going to reward winning, what's the point of the sport? Why play the game? Yeah. Listen, this is why I think you're awesome. You have unbelievable opinions that... <laughs> I agree with. Most of everyone. <laughs> right. And uh, listen, I, I hope to have you on some more. And, and uh, listen, when you were on Rosillo's pod, just talking about all of the shit that you were talking about, I really appreciate it, man. Oh, no problem. Yeah. And your book, Fat, Crazy, Tired, yeah. Tales from the Trenches of Transformation. Yeah. Pretty powerful. Pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, to me, I think it's powerful. You know, it's about me eating myself uh, into depression and then eating my way back out of it, too. Man, like, I, the one and only, Van Layton. Thank you, know? you guys. Serious. Right. Thank you, man. No problem. <laughs>